Welcome to Brand and New, brought to you by the International Trademark Association. INTA is a global association representing more than 30,000 brand owners and professionals dedicated to supporting trademarks and related intellectual property to foster consumer trust, economic growth, and innovation. In this podcast series, every two weeks, host Audrey Dove shares with you a new topic related to innovation and its impact for the legal world, with a special focus on intellectual property. My guest today is Fabrice Mattei, the head of the climate change and IP group at Rouse, an international IP law firm. Based in Asia for more than 20 years, Fabrice's practice covers patents, geographical indications, and other IP rights in various fields, including green tech and genetic resources. Fabrice is also an IP researcher with Kyoto Center for Comparative Law in Japan and consultant with the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations on IP Matters. In this episode, he helps us navigate the emerging area of IP and climate change from carbon footprint, regulatory proceedings, renewable energy, to technology transfers to adapt or mitigate global warming that reshape the IP landscape and have a direct impact on business strategies. Climate change is one, if not the most crucial topic of our times, with disasters multiplying all over the world. Actually, in the latest edition of the World Economic Forum's Global Risks Report, environmental threats dominate the list of the 10 biggest risks facing our world, both in terms of impact and likelihood. The report says, of all risks, it is in relation to the environment that the world is most clearly sleepwalking into catastrophe. It's a pretty pessimistic statement, but no surprise for you, I guess. You're right, Audrey. I think together with uh, terrorism and probably cybersecurity, uh, climate change is one of the biggest risks. Uh, there are some very interesting research made by professors at Stanford University and uh, their conclusion is that um, if nothing is done to mitigate climate change, temperatures will rise by four degrees Celsius by 2100, which is two more degrees than what the Paris Agreement on Climate Change anticipate. So this, they say, will cause a permanent 30% drop in global GDP. By 2030, the effects of climate change will result in two trillion US dollars loss to the global economy. So, you know, there's a lot of pessimistic, as you say, and warnings coming from private sector, public sectors, international organizations. You may have heard during the COP24 on climate change in uh, Poland, a very interesting report prepared by the uh, United Nations on the risk uh, relating to climate change. Mm -hmm. And uh, most countries, member to the uh, Paris Agreement on climate change, said they somehow endorse it. Uh, interestingly, some countries, the usual suspect, should we say, uh, Russia, but also uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, Syria, and US, they don't really welcome it because they don't want very much to take further action in relation to those uh, pessimistic reports. Uh, but this is all about, uh, you know, risk and, and projections. What about in reality? What have we seen that can really make those reports more tangible? Well, 
Very recently in the U.S., there was a very critical moment after the terrible wildfires in California a few months ago. The Pacific Gas and Electricity filed a bankruptcy request under Chapter 11 of the uh, bankruptcy law in the U.S. because uh, their liability was engaged for approximately 30 billion U.S. dollars. So that's a real translation of the climate change impact. In England, uh, very interesting because, you know, we are talking about IP here. The Cornish Sardines Management Association filed an amendment to modify their geographical indication because the territory where they uh, grow and make those sardines have changed due to climate change. Okay. You are an IP lawyer who identified years ago the interactions between IP and climate change, stressing mainly how green tech innovations can effectively underpin efforts to fight climate change and must therefore be incentivized from a legal and policy standpoint. Could you please give our listeners more insights on these interactions? In relation to IPR, we see two key elements. We have situations where IP laws and climate change have what we call mutual supportiveness. And there are situations where we have seen clear tensions. So maybe let me give you quick examples. For instance, if you look at the TRIPS agreement, uh, Article 27.2 gives WTO members the option to exclude from patent protection any inventions that will basically prejudice health of the people or the environment. So we can say that in this regard, the TRIPS agreement is in mutual supportiveness to the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. But the most interesting, in my view, is the tensions. But I will give one example in particular. It covered the barriers against the uh, technologies that eventually are prejudicial to uh, the environment. Under the GATT agreement, uh, there are border adjustments available. Some of them are based on pricing or border tax adjustments. Some of them are based on labor or technical standards. Now, what is very interesting is that under the WTO or GATT legislation, products may be considered as identical in terms of tax adjustment or technical adjustment, even though their production process is not the same. It means that the same product may be subject to technical barrier or tax, even though their production in one case has been compliant with good environmental practice, and for another product, it has not complied with good environmental practice. So take, for instance, an aluminum product using electricity generated from coal. It will be treated like aluminum product using electricity from renewable energy, even if the carbon intensity of the former would be much higher than the latter. So that's where there is a clear tension between the WTO GATT legislation and the Paris Agreement. Because under the Paris Agreement, if a technology is imported to a particular country, and this technology eventually contribute to damage environments, the Paris Agreement will look at not only the final product, but also the process. How is relevant to intellectual property? It's very simple. Many of our clients, you know, when we develop an IP strategy, patent strategy or trademark filing strategy, 
we have this tendency to believe that because we patent an invention in, let's say, 20, 30 countries, we can, once it's granted, exploit this patent in those countries. Well, under the Paris Agreement, that may not be the case because they may look at the technology and decide that the process of making, for instance, this um, particular product has not been environmental friendly. And because of that, a country may decide to block the importation of this product into its jurisdiction, even if the owner of this technology has a patent. So as an IP lawyer, we need to consider those two very carefully. We cannot advise clients just on the basis of intellectual property. It's multidisciplinary. On one side, the IP protection, and equally when it comes to exploitation of intellectual property, the risk related to climate change, where some countries do have very strong legislation that will prevent importation or distribution of products which are not compliant with climate change regulatory aspects. Some might argue that IP protection may actually limit the generalization of green innovations by creating monopolies and limiting massive onboarding by imposing high access fees. Based on your experience negotiating access and licensing agreements, on behalf of right orders, do you think this leverage risk is real? And more generally, what are the issues that specifically arise in such negotiations? Dr. Carlos Cora, director of the Center for Inter Interdisciplinary Studies on IP and Economics at the University of Buenos Aires. He's an advocate of what you just mentioned. Basically, his view is that in order to mitigate and adapt to climate change, we should avoid basically monopolies in terms of IP protection. So he's very much an advocate of open source and open access. Equally, Tesla strategy, uh, as you may know, they have advertised for a couple of years now the open access to many of their patents in order to enhance um, automotive car manufacturers to move into electrical cars. So, you know, we have strong positions taken by academic sector and also private sector. Personally, I think it's a false problem. We know that, especially in countries like China, a lot of research in climate change technology, whether mitigation or adaptation strategies, are completely subsidized by government. So actually, it's less a private sector ownership mm -hmm. of patents, but it's more public sector. And many technologies that address climate change, many of them have actually expired. If you look at wind technology and solar technology, China is one of the uh, leaders in, in this area, but many patents were initially developed in Germany and in Japan, and many of them have expired. So we're talking here about not really a, a, a very strong, active, patent-intensive sector. Furthermore, you have two strategies, as I mentioned, in terms of addressing climate change, mitigating and adaptation. Mitigating means you really have hardcore patent to mitigate climate change, to stop climate change. You can imagine that sort of patents are extraordinary in their mm -hmm. potential. They are very few. And then you have a lot of invention in relation to adaptation. So uh, those inventions are, for many of them, not patented because it's more like a behavior in some uh, situations, sort of mixture between biodiversity solution, traditional knowledge, and so on. 
Uh, finally, I will make a, a, a comment from my own experience. Um, I've opened a few years ago an office in a country where there is no IP law <laughs> at all. Uh, one of those few countries where there is no IP law mm -hmm. is called Myanmar, ex-Burma. I remember prior to that, I read a very interesting report made by WIPO, and they were saying that uh, unless a country has an integer property system or framework, foreign investments are very unlikely to occur. I can tell you there's a lot of foreign investment in Myanmar, even though there is no IP laws. So I'm not certain uh, between uh, the interaction of IP rights and monopoly rights and the potential impacts it may have on innovation, foreign investment, and so on. There are situations where people are uh, driven by other considerations than just IP, and clearly climate change, in my view, show that IP is, of course, a factor, but it's not the determining factor for people to transfer their technology, to help communities, or to be funded by international uh, financial mechanisms like the Green Fund. In addition to international treaties and soft law declarations, there are more and more local regulations dedicated to global warming and greenhouse gas emissions. Based on your experience, Fabrice, what is their impact on IP for businesses? I have some interesting data to share with you. From 2009 to 2013, so after the COP15, the COP is a convention of the parties of the United Nations on climate change. So the COP15 occurred in Copenhagen on December 2009. So between 2009 and 2013, there were over 100 new climate change laws that were passed every year. And then by 2016, we have seen that number had fallen to around 40 new laws per year. As of today, most countries have in place some, uh, in some situation, basic climate change law, and some countries are very advanced one. What is fascinating is that unlike intellectual property, where in terms of IP law enactment process, it starts with developed country and then later on developing countries, in climate change, some countries, Philippines, for instance, has a very specific climate change legislation. Uh, on the opposite, in developed countries, some countries do not have a specific climate change legislation. They have an environmental legislation with a climate change chapter. Most importantly, in my view, is the role that the court or judiciary play in framing climate change laws. And that's very relevant when it comes to IP. So in US in particular, we have seen actions taken by states, municipalities, districts against corporations for their inaction to mitigate climate change or sometimes their action that prejudice climate change. And that's a new phenomenon because in the past, most climate change litigation cases were against government or states. In Philippines, you have currently an ongoing investigation by the Commission of Human Rights against 47 corporations, including Shell, BP, Total, you know, what we call the carbon majors. And once we, when the investigation will be completed around June 2019, so a few months from now, the case will eventually be transferred to the civil courts for actions against those corporations and claim damages. And those companies say, well, we have nothing to do with that because sometimes we don't have an office. Or, and secondly, we do all we have to do in relation to climate change compliance. We have CSR policy and so on. The action for civil damages, in my view, will go further. And because there is a principle in international law that the contamination or the contribution to climate change is not limited to a specific country. That's another element to consider, not just the climate change laws, but also the climate change jurisprudence and courts. I 
activities. Now, impact on IP. Well, now look at in relation to trademark and branding. There's an interesting decision by the USPTO a few years ago in 2013 about a trademark called Green Seal that was applied for adhesive tape and tape dispensers. And the USPTO examining attorney refused registration of that trademark on the basis that it was deceptively misdescriptive. The adhesive is not environmental friendly. Uh, let's imagine a tires company. They applied their trademark for tires used with motorcycle or automotive, and they select the item of goods as recyclable tires. And they decide to take a, let's say, an enforcement action against a counterfeiter. But for some reason, the tires are not recyclable. It is possible, in my view, that the infringer may attempt to cancel the mark of the tires company on a basis of misdescriptiveness. It seems that it's time for companies to develop new branding strategies more focused on sustainability. But what does that mean in practice? Uh, the branding strategy we have seen in many sectors, but let's take the fashion industry, for instance, a lot of guidelines or sometimes standards that a group of companies or tend to uh, promote. They are usually very informal, soft law, I would say, you know, as guidelines. The problem is, Audrey, we are talking here about Paris Agreement on Climate Change, which is a very broad agreement without any something specific, apart from the global uh, goal that we should uh, do our best not to have the temperature rise by more than two degrees by 2100. And that's why it usually translates in terms of CSR, because CSI is not really a legal commitment. You know, it's more like companies' activity that they will deploy. It's not real uh, a punishment or sanction or penalties if companies fail to do it. In my view, the future will change that. We were talking about maybe in the next 10 years. Why? There's something interesting in the Paris Agreement, which is called the Nationally Determined Contribution, known as the NDC. They are the plan, the national plan of every country in order to mitigate or adapt to climate change. And this is the only aspect in the Paris Agreement where there is an obligation for the country to submit to the United Nations this plan, but very importantly, improve it every five years. The pressure on states and companies will keep increasing five years after five years. And I believe, let's say in 10 years' time, there will be more and more constraints imposed on brands, on innovations to comply with climate change. Brands may be willing to be more sustainable and active against climate change if these initiatives add an impact on their valuation, you developed a new tool called IP Carbon Footprint to tackle this. Could you tell us more about it? So it's a result of um, a cooperation between um, people in our organization uh, specializing in climate change, carbon finance, uh, climate science, and IP lawyers. Basically, we realized that the process of registering and enforcing intellectual property rights is carbon emission intensive. Take an example, uh, in some countries you had to submit evidence of use of your mark uh, in order to uh, overcome an objection for descriptiveness. In some jurisdictions, you don't have the option of 
you know, sending a warning letter because people don't react positively to warning letters. They ignore them. So you have to take a strong, time-consuming, severe criminal action. So all of that creates actually a situation where carbon footprint is inherent to IP activities. So this IP carbon footprint calculator that we have launched at the French National Assembly on March 25 in uh, Paris has three steps calculating the carbon emission of IP rights. Second one is reducing it by developing strategies to limit the impact of carbon emission during prosecution and enforcement of IP rights. And the third one is offsetting and compensating the carbon emissions by investing into climate change projects. You know, we do it very transparent, both in terms of investment needed and retribution and compensation as well. Fabrice, could you share with us your secret? How hmm. do you keep up with innovation related to climate change? And if you were to give our listeners one advice, what would it be? I use different sources. The first one, climate change mitigation, uh, is very important to be aware of the development and trends. So you have, for instance, via Columbia University as an institute on climate change called the Sabine uh, Institute. And that institute uh, has a very interesting caseload and uh, database of over 1,400 uh, climate change cases, ongoing and past cases all around the world. Of course, the majority of cases are in the US, but they also have many cases in Australia, uh, a bit in Asia, Europe, of course. So I think it's a very good uh, platform to visit regularly. Another one is the EPO uh, pattern database using the classification, as I mentioned to you, which is related to uh, uh, renewable energy, this particular uh, classification, the YO2, um, and by doing regular patents, mapping or patent searches, you are able to extract uh, the latest published patents in relation to uh, environment and especially uh, climate change mitigation and adaptation. There are plenty of blogs on climate change. I'm, uh, I'm a researcher also with uh, Strathclyde University in Scotland, and uh, we also have on our university's center on environment, law and policy, a good source of information for those who are mainly interested on what's going on in the field of uh, uh, climate change laws and most importantly policy, because policy, of course, impact laws. To a modest uh, contribution, we have uh, our blog as well within RAUS called ipandclimatechange.com, where we um, try to uh, feature, you know, articles and research and facts cases that take into account or relate to IP and climate change. Thank you very much, Fabrice. Thank you, Audrey. My guest today was Fabrice Mategui, partner at the IP law firm Rouse. Thank you for listening. Be sure to tune in every two weeks on Tuesday for future episodes of Brand and New a podcast from the International Trademark Association. If you liked this episode and think someone else would too, please share it. And to learn more about INTA, please visit INTA.org.